0: If you'll open your Bibles with me, turn to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to start reading at verse 26, and I'm going to keep going until verse 42. When we think about Jesus and his life and his work, what he did to accomplish our salvation, we might just automatically summarize it, and I think it's a good thing to do is to summarize it as the cross, But Jesus' whole life was a life of obedience. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and also died the death that we should have died. Both of those things are part of our salvation. And those things have been titled the active obedience of Christ, what he's done on our behalf. And then his passive obedience, the things that were done to him on our behalf. Marking his active obedience, being his life that he lived, everything he has done for us, and the passive obedience being the death that he died for us, what was done to him, not that he was passive in the process, as we've read over and over again. But what we have in this scene that we're about to read, the Garden of Gethsemane, is we see the fine line between those two things. We're in the transition point of going from the active obedience of Christ, Him living for us, to the transition to where He's going to be handed over to men. Brutal men who will crucify Him. And in that line is this tense scene where we see Jesus' humanity on full display and if there was ever a time in the Gospels where we look at Jesus' life and think to ourselves, is, is, you know, is there possible wavering here? We see it in this text. Let's pick up with that in mind. Starting in verse 26 of Mark chapter 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the mount to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will and he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not wash one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As we enter into this final scene, Jesus is only a few hours away from the terrible reality that he's going to face. The factors that would bring about his arrest, his trial, his eventual execution were already all in pray- place. Judas had already sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He already knew Jesus' normal place to go and pray. They had already experienced Jesus' teaching, Olivet Discourse, on the Mount of Olives, when he taught them about the end times and when he taught them that it was that was his regular teaching pattern he was in jerusalem active amongst the people teaching the people and then he left and went on the mount of olives opposite of jerusalem and went and neither taught his disciples or was in prayer this was his typical custom so judas knew where he was going to go And it seems like the only people that are unaware of what's about to happen to Jesus is his disciples, who he's told time and time again that he's going to die, that he's going to be betrayed, and that he will rise again. In my goal this morning, I've titled the sermon, Trial by prayer, which sounds a little bit, it's a little riff off of trial by fire. That we see here the moment of Jesus' life where we see the most angst, the most trouble, the most difficulty. And since it's so rare that that we get to see into Jesus' inner life and attitude to what's going on, I think it's fitting that we would spend this week exploring that. And next week, looking at specifically that prophecy that he gave, that for it is written that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. That's what we'll see next time. But maybe there's just a couple of things in that first section, verses 27 through 31, which we need to know in order to understand what's going on in Gethsemane. The first thing is that Jesus has predicted something, the disciples, all scattering and all leaving him, according to the same thing that everything he said is going to happen. That it will happen for it is written. That whatever is going to happen in Gethsemane, it's not taking Jesus by surprise. He understands what's going on because it is written ...in the Scriptures that it will happen. And not only that, but he knows that it's necessarily going to happen... ...because we're told in verse 27... ...notice that it says that it's written that I will strike the shepherd. Who's speaking that line? Well, it comes from Zechariah 13, verse 7... ...and we know it's the Father who's going to strike the shepherd... ...and they're going to be scattered. And maybe the last thing that we need to know... ...before going into our text... ...to see what's going in... ...in Jesus' inner life and attitude... ...is the self-confidence... ...that Peter displays for us. When he reacts to Jesus' prophecy... ...that they'll all go away... ...notice he he just kind of skims over... ...something that he's always skimmed over... ...every time Jesus has predicted his death... The fact that he will be raised, that he will come back to life, and that, don't worry, you you abandoning me will not be the last word on the matter. I will gather you to myself and meet you in Galilee. But Peter fixates on what he just said and the implications that it had for him. They knew, they had heard him say that the shepherd would be struck, but now new information is coming to the fore. The fact that all the sheep will scatter. That Jesus will be left alone, isolated, betrayed by his best friends at his most critical hour. And Peter, it strikes him to his core... And he says, even though they all fall away, I will not. And let me ask you a question. How would you respond? How would you respond if Jesus spoke to you right now and said, you will betray me? Is there not some sort of righteous indignation where you say to yourself, not I... (laughs) I love you, Lord. You know I love you. I will not betray you. It's kind of like I've heard people say on Mount Sinai when God gives the law to his people and Israel says we will do all of it and keep it. What else were the Israelites to say once they were given the Ten Commandments? That we're not going to do it? See, the thing is, is that Peter's... Response that he does not want to betray his Lord and that he loves his Lord is sincere. I believe him. Because at the end of God, John's Gospel, when that scene of Jesus bringing Peter, coming back and meeting his disciples in Galilee, and he repeats to him three times, do you love me, Peter? He says yes, three different times, marking this same exact occasion. He really did love him his problem was a problem of self-confidence. It was a confidence that he placed not in Jesus to be able to save him, but a confidence that he relied on in his own strength. You see, there's this fine line between courage and stupidity. And that line is oftentimes really hard to distinguish. And the reality is what makes courage courage is that it's based on good fundamental realities. It's based on truth. It's the thing that makes a soldier jump on a hand grenade without a second thought to save his compatriots. That's courage. But what Peter has is a confidence in himself. A confidence that Oftentimes we see this same confidence, which is so confident in yourself that you don't think you need to pray. That you don't think you need to depend upon God. And every Christian in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to be able to confess that we have sinful flesh that tugs us in a direction that's away from God. And if we look at all the heroes in the faith, we should become convinced of this. Noah, though he was righteous by faith alone and was delivered on the ark, he got drunk immediately afterwards, after the flood. Abraham, the father of the faith, betrayed his wife on multiple occasions, trying to save their own skin lying to get out of trouble, not relying on the power of God to save them. David had his Bathsheba to get what he wanted. There is this vain self-confidence that if we look throughout the scriptures we should not be deceived by, but so often we are. We're deceived by maybe our spiritual maturity, By our close relation to Christ, that we are beyond, we're no longer capable of X or Y sin. And the reality is, without being careful, without being vigilant and diligent and prayerful, we can succumb to the same sins that every Christian of every age has succumbed to. That's the problem with the disciples. And this is what Jesus does once he gets to the garden. We see this first trial. This trial that Jesus remains faithful even though his heart is breaking. He goes into Gethsemane, which Gethsemane, by the way, means olive press, which you would expect to find on the Mount of Olives. That Jesus goes into this location to pray, and he tells his disciples as a whole to pray... In one location, he walks a little bit farther along, and he takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and he reveals something to them. He began to be greatly distressed. That word there is only used in Mark's gospel, and it's used six different times of a variety of occasions. And maybe the one all-encompassing word there that works for greatly distressed is the word for overwhelmed. It's used of the crowds that see Jesus' miracles and the authority that he's given, and they're overwhelmed by what he has done. And it's used here about how Jesus is overwhelmed by the current distress. He's taken them And he's telling them personally, look at that, verse 34. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Sometimes we have this, maybe this understanding that if you knew what was coming, that you wouldn't really react. That maybe the height of Christian maturity is trusting God so much with the future that you're impervious to the distresses of this life that really you're unfeeling by distresses that you even if you lose a loved one that it won't affect you because you trust in God and his sovereignty over everything that's not true What Jesus is revealing to his disciples here... ...and what we're getting is special insight to... ...an insight that we don't get to see... ...anywhere else really... ...to this extent... ...is the emotional life of Jesus. We see that Jesus was truly a human being. That he had emotions, had feelings... ...and by the way, he didn't keep those feelings bottled in... ...and not revealing them to other people... He came to his closest friends. And he revealed his heart. He showed them the pain that he's going through. He's overwhelmed. Jesus' humanity here is not suffering as the stoic. Being human means having emotions just like this. And part of being human, by the way, is not hiding those emotions and thinking you can conceal it from other people and that somehow makes you more courageous during the midst of different trials that come your way. But what is Jesus sorrowful over? What is, has him overwhelmed, perplexed, distressed, sorrowful even unto death? Well, we just said he knew that he was going to die and that he was going to rise again. So it's not his mere death. And we've already talked about some courageous people of soldiers who are willing to throw their lives sacrificially to save their comrades. So what makes Jesus' distress so unique? Why is this the moment that he is perplexed and overwhelmed. Why is this the moment in which Jesus in His human nature is at an impasse? Well, we can just look at what He prays. Verse 35, He prays to His Father, if it was possible that the hour might pass from Him. It's marked as summarizing the content. And we get to see the words of it in verse 36. When he said, "Ah, Father, I've heard people say about Abba that it's the word maybe English equivalent to Daddy. That's not really the case. And the original commentator who said that, I think it was uh, Jokinus Jeremias, it was not an English first name. That the first person who said something like that, by the end of the commentary, that section actually kind of... Changes and softens the edge of it. It's just the word of a familial bond. It's the word for a cl- close relationship. Daddy's a little too—it's too a little bit too childish. Adults don't say daddy, usually. Maybe some of you do. I'm, I'm not judging. But in the this in the air in their world, in their culture, adults would use this term. It was a term of endearment. It was a term of closeness. It was a term of love and affection. And he prayed to his father this way, which we're told that believers have the privilege of praying to the father as their Abba in Romans chapter 8 and in the book of Galatians. But he prays and says, all things are possible for you. And we get to the what here. We're not going to just pass over that. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. That's the essence of his request. This is the thing that has him overwhelmed. Unfortunately, we've already discussed this. Back in Mark chapter 10... ...when the disciples were arguing about who the greatest was... ...talk about self-confidence... ...and they wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand... ...or his left hand... ...and Jesus responded to them... ...you have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism... ...with which I'm going to be baptized? Are you able to drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? ...he was talking about something more than His death. Let me just read. I'm going to read one of the same verses that I read the last time and one new one. Psalm 75, verse 8, is the one that I read the last time. we were told that, For the, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Let me add one this time. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send it whom I send you to drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. This is a common metaphor for the wrath and judgment of God. It's what's being talked about when we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. We're told that God is for us. If God is for us, how can, who can be against us? Verse 32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In what sense did Jesus not, in what sense did God? The father, not spare his own son. Yes, he underwent death, but something more significant is going on in the death that he's about to die. He's about to undergo God's wrath upon the people whom He came to represent. He came as a substitute. And as we saw last week, I explained it to His disciples. He came as the Passover Lamb. To die on behalf of sinners to redeem them. To save them. See, what Jesus is fearful of, dare I say, is experiencing the unmitigated wrath of a holy God... Due to sinful humanity. You see, we live in a world in which all of God's wrath is mitigated. God's wrath is revealed against the whole world, against all unrighteousness among men. Right? That's Romans chapter 1, verse 18. God's wrath is revealed. But you know what? The full extent of it is not given the full extent of what we are due is never received on us in this life. Everything we experience, whether it's disease, death, losing loved ones, being betrayed by friends, all of that is a, yes, it reveals that we are under God's wrath and curse. True. But what Jesus was fearful of was that wrath fully revealed. That wrath not mitigated by anything. Feeling the full taste of it in his own person. And here in the garden, did you notice? So that's what he went through. He was faithful in the midst of the bitterness of the cup that's being given to him. And the bitterness of that cup is God's wrath. And if you're reading this, that moment that I told you about wavering, notice what, how he prays. He's praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he understands God's sovereignty very well. He quotes, and said, quotes Scripture time and time again, knowing that if it's written in God's Word, it will happen by necessity. Even with the betrayal of the disciples... And yet, he says, all things are possible for you. God is able to do anything he wants. And he's asking in this moment, the fear of dread of undergoing God's righteous wrath, his holiness. He asks that it be removed. The reality is, if it was just simply... His death. Or rather, if if it was about removal of God's wrath, the cup, His answer, the Father's answer was no. Why is that? Why, when He gets to this moment, He asks, if it were possible, deliver me from this. Why would the Father say no? Because... This is the reason why Jesus came. Because for sinners to be saved from God's righteous wrath, there is no other way. The death penalty is all that there is, and it's not just the death penalty received in this life, even though that is a part of it. It's experiencing death forever and ever, for eternity in hell. ...realize that the father's answer in saying no to his son... ...is because there was no other way. Do you know what the implications of this is? When we're talking to our good, friendly, Mormon neighbors... ...when we're talking to the very kind atheists next door... ...who, you know, religion works out good for you... but. Doesn't really work out for me. And when we're not motivated by love to submit to the Father's will to share the gospel with them, we are letting them go seemingly unwittingly to the grave to endure the full extent of wrath that you are aware of, but they are not. The Son went to the cross because this was the only way for sinners to be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. But I came across something that was a little confusing for me. Because Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. I wonder what event he's talking about other than this moment. To him who was able to save from death and he was heard because of his reverence. The book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7 says that he was answered with a yes. He was answered... With, the, in the, with the, the answer of a yes, in the sense that he rose again from the de- dead. That death did not have the final word. That when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which he'll quote on the cross in Psalm 20, quote in Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, that Psalm ends with his redemption that God will bring him and keep his seed alive forever and ever. So ultimately, God keeps his word. Ultimately, God gives him the yes answer. This should be an encouragement to us for our prayers. Let me quote Calvin for a second. He's talking about The fact that how can you pray something that's contrary to God's written will? What is Jesus in His holiness of His person, of His humanity, reacting against? Well, He's praying His humanity, His sinless humanity is reacting against what's going to happen to Him. That He's going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners who are going to do wicked deeds, who are going to do evil things to Him. What Calvin says is that God does not desire us to always be exact or scrupulous in inquiring to what he has appointed, but allows us to ask what is desirable according to the capacity of our senses. Let me read that again. God does not desire us to always be exact or scrupulous in our inquiring to what he has appointed, ...but God allows us to ask what is desirable... ...according to the capacity of our senses. For example... ...we can pray, and it's a good thing to pray... ...that we don't, as the church in America... ...move towards being a persecuted church. Because persecution is a bad thing. It's okay to pray... For our children, that God would open their eyes and give them believing hearts to turn away from their sin. It's okay to pray that God would deliver our friends, our family, our loved ones from cancer, from distress, from their anxieties. It's okay to pray that God would remove the superstitions of the people around us ...plagued by unbelief and that they would turn from their sins and turn to the living God. Why? Because all those things are not good. But ultimately, how we pray at the end of the day... ...is we pray like Jesus. We pray according to our senses, according to our apprehensions of the current moment... May God remove the evil and the wickedness. But... ...yet not what I will... ...but what you will. Jesus had a human mind... ...dependent upon the Scriptures... ...for knowledge of who He is... ...dependent upon the Holy Spirit... ...but Jesus in His humanity... ...did not know all things. If you go back in time... And I know I've repeated this illustration multiple times. If you were to go back in time and ask Jesus your most pertinent question. Jesus wouldn't speak English because he didn't know English. It was invented yet. That was a development 1,200 years later. Jesus had a human mind. And in this moment, he had a humanity just like ours when we're going through trials. Which is, I don't know. But I trust the Father. I trust Him with my life. I submit to Him in all things. I know what I've come to do. I've come to die on the cross to save sinners. And I will not let anything derail me from that. But in this moment, knowing what He's about to undergo, He prays that if it were possible, that He would have this removed from Him. We're looking at Jesus' heart here. We see his broken heart over this issue. We see that he's broken hearted because of the bitter cup that he's going to drink from. And lastly, we see Jesus' disappointment. It's a disappointment that's rooted in the weakness of his disciples. He finds them sleeping three times. You know, this isn't the first time this group has done this. Back in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, we find the disciples, Peter, James, and John, the only ones up allowed up on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is being transfigured, they were caught asleep, unaware of what's going on. And now Jesus selects these same three men, His closest disciples, to come up with Him on the mountain, and He finds them asleep. And Jesus addresses the most self confident one first. He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? And that word there, could you, is the word for strength. Jesus is saying here, it's, guess it, the English, the ESV is right to say, could you not watch one hour? But Jesus is saying to him, Were you not strong enough? You said you would never deny me, never forsake me. You have all this confidence in yourself. But you're not strong enough to stay awake for one hour... ...and not fall asleep and pray like I requested of you? And he leaves and he gives them the reason. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation... The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The reality is, for his disciples, Jesus was faithful to them while his disciples were weak. Jesus knew that they would fail him, and he's not surprised by it. But don't think that Jesus wasn't disappointed. He was let down. He was left alone Jesus was abandoned by them. And Jesus is criticizing their weakness of flesh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't misread this. Jesus is not condemning the disciples' need for maybe eight hours of sleep on a regular basis. Jesus is not condemning their created natural limitations here. But let's think about where we're at here. It's late at night. The disciples had just eaten a pretty big meal. And now they have went out near midnight... ...during that 9 to, 9 to 12 p.m. shift, if you will... And they're sitting down and they're told to watch and pray. On one level, their natural limitations, of course, they're going to fall asleep. Wouldn't you? Being pitch black, it's not like there's lights on, it's not like there's blue lights stimulating their activity for their minds to be more engaged. But the reality is, that's not their problem. Their problem is they're not obeying Jesus. They're not taking Jesus' word seriously. The last time he told them to watch was at the end of Mark chapter 13. Telling them that disaster will suddenly come. To watch, be on guard, stay awake, be vigilant for the hour is near. The reality is, is despite Jesus' distress, besides seeing him sweat droplets of blood, Luke 22 tells us, despite seeing Jesus' anxiety, distress, depression over this moment, telling him that they're going to betray him, that he's going to be betrayed by one of the twelve, that he's going to be murdered, they still fall asleep. You know, it's one thing to go out camping and to fall asleep after a long day of being tired. It's another thing if I tell you there's wolves outside and you hear them howling. Why are you not going to sleep? Because you're concerned. Because you take that warning seriously. The only way you're going to fall asleep with wolves howling out is if you plug your ears. Put it out of your mind. And just rest. Just get some sleep. You're tired. Just succumb to being tired. This is the weakness of the flesh. The weakness that is not obedient to God. This is the weakness that should have drove Peter to not trust in the confidence of his flesh. But this is not a weakness Jesus displayed. You see... What the disciples and what we're all called to trust in for our hope of salvation is not our own strength. Not our own capabilities. What the disciples should have done in response to hearing that they would betray them is they should have told their friends to watch out. To be vigilant. To be on the alert for a moment which might lead to them betraying Jesus to, if if you think that I'm going to mess up, or if you think I'm going to fall asleep at any moment this night, you know, maybe slap me in the face. Keep me awake. And you know what you're going to do if you trust in God? You're going to pray. You're going to pray the same words Jesus just prayed. If it were possible, let me not betray my Savior. God works through means. And His disciples... Couldn't see. The disciples did not have ears to hear this moment. What's going on? The distress that Jesus was going through. And the amazing thing is, is what we put our confidence in. Is this whole scene. Do not let this, any of this message, make you think at any moment Jesus was not in control. He was distressed. He was pushed to his human limitations in this moment. But he was in control. And we see that as he comes out of his prayer, after we hear his prayer, we see him call his disciples. He says, are you still sleeping? Are you still at rest? And there, it is enough. That word there, I think is better translated, it is not far off, which is... The same word that's used only one other place in any of the New Testament. And it's used in Mark chapter 7, describing the Pharisees' hearts that, that their lips, they proclaim one thing, but their heart is far from me. And what Jesus said, the hour has come. The hour is not far away. It has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And this should be the moment in which we finally get to rest and relax. As we see Jesus emerge from this temptation, emerge from this trial, committed to dying on the cross for sinners, committed to enduring the full wrath of God to save us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that even though you knew the cup that you were about to drink. You knew the cup you were sending your son to drink. And yet, you sent him anyways. Lord, we are so thankful. We are thankful that Jesus chose voluntarily, by his own will, to drink from this cup because he recognized there was no other way to save the people of God Lord, we thank you that even though the disciples were weak, even though they abandoned Jesus, Jesus was strong. And he committed himself to saving those who were weak. He committed to saving those he knew would betray him and abandon him. Lord, it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And that's true for everyone. Lord... We are so thankful that Jesus was willing to undergo the miseries of this life, the pains of death, and even the wrath of God to save us. And Lord, may you now, out of Jesus' strength, may you conform us to this image. May you keep us watchful, on guard, that we might not enter temptation Because if anything we see from this, even the strongest of us have a weak flesh, no matter how willing our spirit is to follow. So Lord, we confess we need your Holy Spirit to guide us in life and in death. We need your spirit, the spirit that not only started this work in our hearts, but we need him to bring it to full completion. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me.